Hello, and welcome to Jaded YA Reads, a YA read-aloud podcast for tweens, teens, and adults, brought to you by the Wells Public Library. This season, we are reading The Girl with the Silver Eyes by Willow Davis Roberts, with permission by Simon & Schuster. Chapter 8 That evening, when Monica and Nathan again decided to swim, Katie told them she'd be along in a few minutes. As soon as she was sure they'd actually gone down to the pool level, she got out her list of telephone numbers and began to call. This time, she got someone at almost every number, but most of the people who answered didn't know anyone by the names of the kids she gave them. Once when she asked for Eric Van Alsberg, the voice on the other end said, Just a minute. Then Katie began to tingle all over, anticipating that it would be the right one. The male voice that answered a moment later, however, sounded a lot older than ten. Who's this? he wanted to know. Is this Eric Van Alsberg? Katie asked carefully. Her heart had begun to pound in her chest. Eric, this is Harry, the voice said. Who do you want? I want Eric Van Alsberg. My dad must have thought you said Harry. There's no Eric here, the voice said, and the connection was broken. Katie was disappointed, and she also realized that she didn't really have a plan for starting to speak to the right people when she found them. It would be so much better to meet them face to face so they could tell she was one of them, too, assuming that the other three were actually all like herself. But she didn't know how to manage that. And then, under one of the Casey listings, she asked for Dale and heard a woman's voice call, Dale, telephone, and Katie crossed her fingers as hard as she could. Hello? Hello, Dale Casey? Yes, who's this? My name is Katie Welker, Katie said, her mouth dry. I'm trying to find a Dale Casey who was born September... She quickly consulted the card from her pocket. September 16th, who'll be 10 years old this fall. There was a long silence, and the boy on the line spoke cautiously. Who are you? What, what do you want? It was one of them, Katie thought, with a prickling along her spine. She was sure it was. Did your mother used to work for the Curtis Pharmaceutical Company before you were born? There was another long silence. Who did you say you are? Katie Welker, I need to talk to you if your birthday is September 16th and your mother's name is Sandra. There was the sound of breathing, nothing else. In the background, she heard a man's voice. I'm waiting for a call, Dale. Don't tie up the phone. Can I call you back? Katie asked quickly. Later tonight or tomorrow? Tomorrow, the boy said. Okay, tomorrow. And then that connection, too, was broken. Katie's hand was damp with sweat when she hung up on her end. It had to be the right one. It had to be. She didn't bother to call the rest of the Casey's, and the Van Alsbergs brought no results until the final one. Eric, who are you trying to get? Paula's boy? Again, excitement surged through her. Yes, that's right. The woman apparently turned away from the phone to speak to someone else. Some kid wants to speak to Paula's boy. What's her name now? The reply was unintelligible. The woman came back to Katie. Paula divorced my brother-in-law and she's remarried now, but we can't remember what her new name is. Something sort of ordinary sounding. Dunlap or Duncan or Duggan, something like that. Don't you have her number? Katie asked desperately, picturing the long list of Dunlaps and Duncans and Duggins in the phone book. No, haven't talked to her since the divorce. Sorry, I can't help you. Click. Katie was alone on the line. Divorced and remarried with a different name. That hadn't even occurred to her. How could she possibly trace anyone under those circumstances? Still, she wasn't totally discouraged this time, because there was Dale Casey, and she would call him tomorrow. 
Katie descended the outdoor stairs to find that Nathan was swimming vigorously back and forth across the deep end of the pool, and Monica was in a lounge chair talking to Adam Cooper. They didn't see her coming, and Katie's bare feet made no sound on the concrete around the pool. So you haven't really seen very much of her until she came to live with you just a few days ago then, Mr. C was saying. And Monica fluffed up her short blonde hair and replied, No, not since she was less than four years old. They were talking about her. He'd asked questions of Mrs. M and now of her mother. Why? Why should a grown man be so inquisitive about a little girl? Adam Cooper had an easy way of speaking, relaxed and friendly. Must be quite a change in your life to have a ten-year-old after not having a child around in such a long time. How did he know she was ten or almost ten? She was small, and most people took her for younger than she was. Had Monica told him her age? Katie stood still, a few yards behind them, and once more the uneasiness rose within her. I guess he had trouble with sitters for her. Didn't get along with her or something? The chill crept through Katie, although it was still hot. Why was he asking questions about her? She remembered a time, last year, when a substitute teacher had sent her to the office for creating a disturbance. It hadn't been Katie's fault at all. At least, she didn't think so. The boy behind her had been poking her in the back with something hard and rather sharp and saying nasty things to her, trying to get her to turn around. The substitute, whose name was Miss Cottrell, had spoken very sharply to the class about the need for absolute silence while they did their spelling test. I will not tolerate any talking at all, she had said in a voice that promised severe retaliation if they disobeyed. Of course, that only made the kids outrageous. They always tried to take advantage of substitutes, doing things they would never have tried with Mrs. Anderson. Two boys tossed erasers across the room the second Miss Cottrell turned to write on the board, and one of them hit her in the back of the head and left white chalk dust on her dark hair. And Jimmy Polchek stuck out his foot and tripped Charlie Foster so that instead of walking up to sharpen a pencil, Charlie fell into the wastebasket. And then, Durward English started poking Katie in the back even harder. She was good at spelling and was trying to listen to the words and get them all spelled correctly and written in her best penmanship. She was good at that, too. Only it was hard with Durward pestering her. He was always pestering someone. Once he'd locked some girls in an outhouse when they were on a class picnic at a park, and it had been over an hour before anyone heard them yelling and let them out. Durward had been suspended for three days because of that. Not that Durward minded. He had returned to school boasting that his father had taken him fishing for three days. When Katie talked about it at home, Grandma Welker said scornfully that people as stupid as Durward's father contributed to the delinquency of minors. Anybody in this house who misbehaves in school won't get a three-day fishing trip, Grandma said with a cross glance at Katie. She'll get three days locked up in her room on bread and water. Katie didn't think Grandma would really have kept her on bread and water, but she wasn't sure enough of it to take any chances. She tried to ignore Durward, but after a few minutes of feeling the point of his pocket knife jabbing more and more painfully between her shoulder blades, Katie had used all the force she could muster and turned the thing back away from herself. The next thing she knew, Durward was yelling, and there was blood all over his hand and his desk, and when Miss Cottrell came to the back of the room, she was very angry. What happened? She wanted to know. And Durward, rat that he was, had blamed it all on her. Katie did it. She made me get stabbed. She practically rammed the knife into my hand. She did it on purpose. So Durward had been sent to the nurse, who decided that since he'd had a recent tetanus shot, it wasn't serious enough for more than a band-aid, and Katie was sent to the office. Katie remembered standing in front of the principal's desk, her legs quivering, and being asked for her version of the story. What could she say? 
that she'd used some mental force that nobody else seemed to have to twist the knife against the boy who was jabbing her with it? It was his knife, Katie said. He was fooling around with it, poking me. And so you twisted around and cut him with it? The principal asked. I jerked away, Katie said, and somehow he cut himself. I can still feel where he poked me. The principal looked at the back of her blouse, but he said there was no cut in it. Do you want the nurse to look at your back and see if there is a mark on your skin? No, Katie said. If there was no tear in her shirt, it was unlikely that there'd be a mark on her skin. But it was his own fault. In the end, nothing happened to either of them, Katie or Durward. They were sent back to class, where spelling was all over, and the kids were doing arithmetic. But all the kids looked at Katie out of the corners of their eyes. Katie still remembered the way the principal and the teacher had looked at her. Not at Durward, but at her. And Monica was now telling Adam Cooper all about the trouble with the sitters. Katie stood quite still and listened to what a blabbermouth her mother was, saying how Mrs. H. had found Katie too difficult to deal with, although she had been unwilling to say specifically why, and Mrs. G. had been unsatisfactory too. The first one, what was her name? Hornecker? She was all right, except that she didn't get along with Katie. I wonder if you still have her phone number, Mr. C. said. I have some friends who are looking for a sitter, and their little boy is only two. Maybe she'd do better with a young child. Yes, I guess I still have it. Or it's probably in the paper. That's where I got both their numbers, in the newspaper, Monica said. She turned her head then and saw Katie. Well, hi. We thought you changed your mind about swimming. She almost had, Katie thought. She looked at Mr. C, and he was grinning, friendly but she didn't believe for a minute that he wanted to ask Mrs. H. about sitting for his friend's little boy. He'd been asking questions of Mrs. M. about her, and now he was pumping Monica. Katie didn't know why, but it made her afraid. I'll race you to the other end of the pool, Adam Cooper offered, but Katie shook her head. I don't feel like racing, she said. I don't feel like swimming, even. I think I'll go see Mrs. M., she turned and went back up the wooden steps and along the deck to Mrs. M's patio doors, which were open to catch a little breeze. She looked back down and saw that Mr. C was watching her, and Monica was leaning toward him, saying something. "'Come on in!' Mrs. M called out. She was sitting with her feet in a dishpan of water. "'Excuse me, but my feet swell up in this weather. There's a pitcher of iced tea in the ice box. Why don't you get us each a glass of it?' Katie did so, adding sugar to both of them. It was the only way she could stand the taste of the tea. My grandma used to call it an icebox, too, just like you do, she observed, settling onto the sofa beside Lobo, who opened one eye briefly and then went back to sleep. Oh, I guess all us old-timers get used to saying icebox, Mrs. M told her. They didn't have refrigerators when I was a girl. A man came around twice a week with blocks of ice, and we had a sign we put in the window to show how many pounds we wanted. You don't look like you got wet. I didn't. Katie sipped at the tea. They're talking about me, Mr. C, and my mother. Oh? Well, we all talk about the people we like, Mrs. M said, wriggling her toes in the water. I don't think it's because they like me, Katie said. He's asking more questions about me. Well, that doesn't mean he doesn't like you, does it? Did you tell him how old I am? Katie asked. No, I don't think you ever said how old you are. Nine, eight and a half, Mrs. M guessed. I'll be ten in September. Oh, excuse me, I didn't mean to be insulting. I should have known anyone who reads adult books the way you do would have to be close to ten. Come to think of it, maybe you did tell me you were ten. I forget things these days. Everybody guesses me younger because I'm not very big, Katie said. After a while, when she went home, she asked Monica if she'd told Mr. C how old she was. What? Monica said. She was somewhat distracted. It sounded as if she and Nathan had been quarreling on their way up from the pool. My age, Katie said patiently. Did you tell him I was ten? 
No, I don't think so. Nathan, aren't you going to stay and watch the news? No, Nathan said. I'm surprised you even noticed whether I was here or not, the way you spent all evening talking to that jerk. He isn't a jerk. He's just a nice man who doesn't know anyone here, Monica said. So why doesn't he go meet someone else? Why you? Katie could see they were building up to a real fight. She dimly remembered that her mother and her father had sometimes argued when she was little. She didn't want to listen, and she went into her own room. She wasn't really thinking much about Monica and Nathan, though. She was wondering how Adam Cooper had known how old she was, and wondering, too, why it seemed so important to her to know how he'd learned that she was nearly ten. Chapter 9 As soon as Monica had gone to work in the morning, with a headache, she said, and Katie wondered if it was because she and Nathan had had a real fight before he left the previous night, Katie called the number where she'd reached, Dale Casey. A man's voice answered, a gruff voice. May I speak to Dale, please? He's busy now, the man said. He's got chores to do before he can talk to anybody. He's got to weed the garden and mow the grass. Katie thought quickly. Couldn't couldn't he call me back? Couldn't I leave my number? Well, I guess so. What is it? She told him the number and repeated her name, hoping the man was writing it down. But though she waited in the apartment all morning, no one called. While she was waiting, she sat down and composed a letter to the girl, Carrie Lamont, and addressed it to the return address on the letter Monica had gotten yesterday from her friend Fern. And then, remembering, she went looking for the letter itself. Monica hadn't answered it yet, so it was still lying on her desk in the bedroom. Ordinarily, Katie wouldn't have thought it very nice to read someone else's mail, but surely this was a special case. Maybe Fern Lamont would say something about Carrie that would give her a clue to what she wanted to know. The letter was written in terrible handwriting. Mrs. Anderson would have given Mrs. Lamont an F in penmanship, Katie thought. And most of what she wrote wasn't very interesting. All about Mrs. Lamont going back to work now because the kids were in school, except that now they were out for vacation and she couldn't find a decent sitter and she didn't really like the job all that much. And Charles, that was her husband, didn't think about anything but bowling and left everything else to her. Mrs. Lamont sounded like a whiny sort of woman. Katie wasn't surprised that her husband wanted to bowl rather than sit around home and listen to her. She complained about everything. But finally, at the very end of the letter, Katie found what she'd been looking for. The boys run me ragged with their noise and their dirt, but it's still Carrie who bothers me the most. She is such a strange child. The word strange was underlined, and I've never been able to talk to her. She just looks at me with those unusual eyes and doesn't say anything back. She doesn't cause trouble exactly, but she makes everyone uncomfortable for some reason. I guess I shouldn't say that. She is my own daughter, but it isn't just me. Charlie is always looking and raising his eyebrows and asking what's the matter with her. As if I know. Why do men think the kids are a woman's responsibility? He never takes the kids anywhere or does anything for them except pay their bills. There was more, but that was the important part. Carrie had unusual eyes, and she was strange, and her mother didn't understand her either. Just like me, Katie thought. She composed the letter very carefully, just in case Mrs. Lamont opened it and read it first. Dear Carrie, you don't know me, but I think maybe we could be friends, or at least pen pals. I was born September 10th, the same year as you, and I think maybe we have something in common. Katie chewed on the end of her pen for a minute, wondering if she should specify anything, and decided not to. I like to read, and I like animals, she wrote then, and I'd sure like to hear from you. 
It wasn't much of a letter, but she didn't know what else to put in that wouldn't be dangerous. Dangerous. Dangerous was walking off the curb without looking to see if there was a bus coming, or being careless with matches or something like that, wasn't it? Dangerous was a frightening word, and she was surprised at first that she'd thought it. And then she wasn't surprised, because it was the way she was feeling. Afraid, as if something dangerous was happening. If people didn't like people who were different, would they do something about it? Would they be more than just mean in the way they treated the ones who weren't the same as themselves? She remembered a boy who'd been in her third grade class, a black boy named Ephraim. He'd never done or said a single thing as far as Katie knew to make anyone dislike him. Yet some of the kids never wanted him on their team when they played games, although he was as good a player as anyone else. And some of the kids made remarks where Ephraim could hear them about his color. She'd hoped, when Ephraim moved away after a few months, that in his new home he lived close to some other black kids, because he must have been very lonely. Ephraim couldn't help it if his kin Ephraim couldn't help it if his skin was a different color, and she couldn't help the way she was either. She didn't even want to be able to make things fly through the air. What good did it do her? She found a stamp in a little box on Monica's desk and took the letter to carry downstairs for the mailman, trying to think how she'd react if she got one like it. Dale Casey still hadn't called back. She'd run up and down the stairs and left the front door open so she'd hear the phone if it rang while she was doing that. She wondered if her father had given him her message. There was also the possibility that Dale wasn't interested in talking to her, though he hadn't sounded that way. Katie left the door open again and crossed the hall to knock on Mrs. M's door. She had Dale's address written down. Good morning, Mrs. M said. Her hair looked like something a bird might choose to make a nest in. Or is it afternoon? I overslept. That's what I get for staying up half the night to watch the Late Late Show. She led the way inside and laughed at Lobo, who was stretched full length across the flowered sofa. I guess Lobo stayed up all night, too. I think he has a lady friend. Katie brushed a hand over his head. Have you, Lobo? she asked. Lobo opened one eye. There's a lovely white Persian who lives in the next block. You're right, Katie told Mrs. M. It's a white Persian. Oh, I've seen her. Has good taste, old Lobo has. What's that you've got? Mrs. M waggled her fingers at the slip of paper Katie carried. An address. I don't know my way around at all. Do you know where it is? Mrs. M had to get her reading glasses in order to see it. Then she got out a city map and her finger pointed out the place to Katie. Should be right about there. And where are we? Mrs. M showed her. It doesn't look so far. Do you think I could walk it? You could. The bus runs right there, though, along that red line. Be easier to take the bus. You could get off here and only have two blocks left to walk. How about Millersville? Do you know where that is? About ten miles south of here, I think. Wait a minute, and I'll get a state map. Again, Mrs. M pointed out the place she wanted. Katie wondered if she had enough money in her owl bank to buy a bus ticket to Millersville in case Carrie didn't answer. Or in case Carrie did answer, and that was the only way to get to see her. You're not thinking about taking any trips without telling your ma, are you? Mrs. M asked. No, Katie said slowly. She wondered if she could get to Millersville and back between the time Monica left in the morning and the time she came home at night. She was pretty sure Monica wouldn't let her go alone if she asked. Not right now, anyway, she added, so as to be truthful with Mrs. M. Across the hall, the telephone rang. Katie ran, but whoever it was had hung up by the time she got there. She stared in frustration at the phone. Had it been Dale Casey? She had his number, written on a crumpled piece of paper in her pocket. Katie's fingers were unsteady as she dialed the number, wondering if Mr. Casey would be angry that she'd called twice instead of waiting for Dale to call her back. 
but Mr. Casey wasn't angry. No one answered at all, although she let it ring for a long, long time. That afternoon, Katie met Mr. C in the corridor, carrying a box of books. She knew it was books because it was obviously heavy and there were brightly colored jackets sticking out over the top of it. Hi, open the door for me, will you? And then I won't have to put these down. Obediently, Katie opened the door to 2C. The apartment inside was just as she'd last seen it, except that there was a coffee mug sitting on the table she could see through the kitchen door. Mr. C didn't do anything to make his place look lived in. Katie didn't have any great amount of experience with men. Her father had gone away when she was small, and her grandfather had died so long ago she didn't remember him at all. But she thought most men had a tendency to scatter their belongings around. Nathan, who didn't even live there, left things all over Monica's apartment. Mr. C lowered the box to the floor and stood up, dusting off his hands. Some of these have been in storage for a while and they're dusty. Be a good girl and wipe them off for me, will you? I have another box to bring up. He was gone, leaving her there with his books. Naturally, Katie couldn't help taking a look at them. She'd never been able to resist a book, and when Grandma Welker didn't approve of her, that had been her punishment, to stay in her room without a book. Katie used to keep one or two hidden in reserve, just in case. There were some hardcover mysteries with gory covers and a lot of paperbacks. Katie looked around for something to use to get the dust off them and settled for a paper towel. The kitchen was so sterile looking, she couldn't believe he'd cooked anything in it. Nathan left crumbs everywhere when he went into the kitchen. There was no toaster, no electric frying pan, no can opener, none of the things Monica had in sight on her counter. Katie knew it wasn't really polite to poke around in other people's refrigerators, but her uneasy feeling was growing and she felt compelled to open the door. There was almost nothing in there. A carton of yogurt, four apples, a quart of milk, and another of orange juice. That was all. Nothing to cook. Suspicion led Katie onward, the paper towel forgotten in her hand. And she was right. There weren't even any pots and pans to cook in, and only plastic utensils to eat with and paper plates. In the almost empty cupboard, there was a loaf of bread and a jar of peanut butter. What did it mean? Adam Cooper was more camping out than he was living here. She heard his feet on the stairs and turned quickly back to the box of books. Her heart was beating fast and loud. It felt like a small frightened animal in her chest. Mr. C put down a second box of books beside the first one. There, maybe these will make the place feel more like home. He grinned at her, but somehow Katie didn't feel like grinning back. That book on top must be one my sister's kids left, the last time they came to visit, Mr. C said. Why don't you take it and read it if you want to? And you can always come back and borrow anything else you want. Do you think these will all fit in that little bookcase? Katie stared at the book he'd handed her. The Headless Cupid. Well, it did look interesting, though she thought it might be intended for little kids. She'd take it along, what the heck. Well, Mr. C said, I worked up a sweat carrying that stuff up here. I think now I'm ready for a swim. What about you? When Katie hesitated, he added, Maybe your friend, Mrs. Michaelmas, would like to come and dangle her feet in the water again. Why don't you ask her? Katie did want to go into the water, and Mrs. M was willing to sit on the edge of the pool. Today she was wearing a pink and white lilac muumuu that spread out around her like a gigantic flowered tent, so Katie pushed aside her doubts about Mr. C. At first it was all right. She and Mr. C swam vigorously, and the water was cool and refreshing. But then Mr. C said he had to rest a while, and he went to sit on the edge of the pool beside Mrs. M. To begin with, Katie didn't pay any attention to what they were talking about. And then she heard Mr. C say, Has she ever done anything odd when she was with you, Mrs. Michaelmas? Katie had been on the bottom and had just bobbed to the surface close to the edge of the pool. She was hidden from the speakers by a bonsai tree in a planter box, and she held her breath. 
but not to dive back under the water. Was he asking questions about her again? Apparently, Mrs. M thought he was pretty nosy too. She sounded a bit cross, and Katie could see her blue-veined feet as she splashed them impatiently in the water. "'What do you mean by odd?' Mrs. M asked. "'People think I'm odd because I talk to my cat. People think my friend Mr. Upton is odd because all he can talk about is his coin collection. And Mrs. Shaver, upstairs in 3C, is a vegetarian. Won't even eat butter from cows or eggs from chickens. She's such a vegetarian.' What's odd, Mr. Cooper? Hey, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to upset you, Mr. C said easily. Katie could see his legs, too, tanned and hairy. I just couldn't help being curious, is all. I mean, Mr. Pollard thinks Katie is able to do things. Do things, Mrs. M echoed. Can't everybody do things? Different from what the rest of us can do, he says. Like, Katie's around when a sudden wind blows a door shut in his face and gives him a nosebleed. And the wind also blew the money right out of his wallet and up in the trees and down the street. Winds have been blowing for hundreds of years, Mrs. M said. She reached out a hand to scratch at her shin. I expect they'll keep on long after all of us are gone. Sure, only some winds are different from regular ones, don't you think? Winds that happen inside a building, for instance, when Mr. Pollard's briefcase came open and his papers went sailing all over the place. Mr. Pollard's, uh, uh, what's the word the kids use? A jerk? Or do they have a different word for it now? Doesn't matter. He's one of those people who blame their problems on other people. Can't abide the man. Where's that child got to? She's underwater. Katie's a good swimmer, Mr. C said and Katie quickly went under and swam out across the pool so that they could see her red bathing suit beneath the surface. She came up on the far side, gasping for breath, and turned to find them both watching her. Why did Mr. C keep asking questions about her? Was he trying to get Mrs. M to admit that Katie could do things other people couldn't for some terrible reason? She didn't know why, but she was convinced that the reason was terrible. Katie clung there at the side of the pool, a conviction growing deep inside of her. The conviction that Mr. C had moved into the Cedars' apartments for one reason, to ask questions about Katie herself. He didn't intend to stay long, only until he learned whatever it was he hoped to learn, and that was why he didn't have any pans to cook in and hadn't filled up his refrigerator. And that was why he'd brought some boxes of books after he found out Katie liked to read. He was going to tempt her with the books and use them to get her to talk to him. And then what? If he became certain that Katie could make winds blow and other things happen, what was he going to do about it? Chapter 10. The Headless Cupid was a very good book, but Katie couldn't concentrate on it and worry at the same time, so she finally put it aside and stood up. Monica had come home with a sick headache and hadn't wanted any supper. She was lying down in her room, a cold cloth over her eyes. Katie had had a Mexican TV dinner and had made her own salad to go with it. She didn't mind. TV dinners were a treat because Grandma Welker never had them in the house. Grandma had thought they were totally worthless and tasteless. Maybe some of them were, but the Mexican ones were delicious. This one had a cheese enchilada and refried beans and Spanish rice and a tamale. The tamale was the best, but it was very small. Katie had eaten it in three bites. She wondered if they made dinners that had more tamales. It was warm, but Katie didn't feel like swimming anymore, even if there was someone in the pool. She could see through the sliding glass doors that looked out onto the deck that there were people down there. Mr. P and Miss K were stretched out in the lounge chairs, and Mr. C was there on the edge of the pool again. They all wore bathing suits, but they weren't swimming. 
They were talking, and Katie felt a prickle of apprehension. Were they talking about her? She suddenly decided to see if she could find out. Monica was silent in her darkened room. Nathan hadn't showed up for the first evening since Katie had come to live with her mother. She wondered if Monica's headache had been because she'd had a quarrel with Nathan, but she didn't want to ask. She couldn't go down the stairs from the deck without being seen, but she could take the inner stairs and then go out through a door that the manager used at one corner of the pool area. The people who lived on the ground floor used that door too. It came out a short distance behind where the two men and Miss Kay were sitting. It was also shielded from them by another one of those bonsai trees. This one was a little bigger than the ones nearer the pool. Katie thought if she opened the door very quietly and moved slowly in her bare feet, she could crouch behind the tree and hear what the three were saying. And just as she'd suspected, they were talking about her. She could see them through the prickly little tree, bits and pieces of them. Mr. Cooper was facing almost toward her, but he was looking at Miss Kay. Miss Kay, in an electric blue bikini, was worth looking at. She poked at her red gold curls and said, I think you're both crazy. She's just a normal little girl. Then how come, Mr. P said, leaning forward, she made that rock jump out and whack me on the ankle. You saw the rock. I didn't see it leap out and hit you, Miss Kay said. I only saw it there after you'd hurt your ankle. Mr. P struck the arm of the lounge chair with his fist. I tell you, that kid is dangerous. She can make things happen. I know she can. Well, I don't believe that, Miss Kay said. But even if she could, you brought it on yourself. You were nasty to her. Nasty? Because I was annoyed when she ran into me and spilled my insurance applications all down the stairs and then walked on them? Do you know how long it took to fix them up so they were fit to take to the office? And I had to go back to some of my clients and have them sign new copies. Listen, obviously Mr. Cooper realizes there is something mighty peculiar about that kid or he wouldn't be asking about her. Katie was getting a cramp in her back from hunching down to keep out of sight, but she didn't dare move. Miss Kay turned her head so that Katie could see her profile. Well, why are you asking questions about her, Mr. Cooper? She hasn't done anything to you, has she? Not a thing, Mr. Cooper said. Well, she hasn't to me either, and Mrs. Michaelmas thinks she's cute too, so why are we wasting time talking about all this silliness? I'm going to swim. For a moment, after Miss Kay got up from the lounge chair, neither of the men said anything. They were too busy looking at Miss Kay to notice that Katie crept back inside through the service door. She wasn't imagining things. Mr. C really was investigating her in some way, and for some particular purpose. It wasn't until the next time Katie eavesdropped that she'd learned what Mr. C was after. And then she found that it was even more frightening than she had supposed. Katie returned to the apartment to find that Monica had emerged from her bedroom and was sitting at the kitchen table, looking wan and pale and sipping iced tea. She looked up and tried to smile. Hi, want to join me in a cold drink? Katie shook her head. Do you feel better? A little, Monica said. You didn't take any phone calls while I was asleep, did you? No. Did you think Nathan would call? Monica grimaced. I guess I hoped he might. On the other hand, he was the one who started the quarrel, and I'm not sure I even want him to call. I never realized how jealous he was, how unreasonable. If I can't even talk to a neighbor when he's right there, why, I'd be foolish to get any more deeply involved with him. I had one marriage that didn't work out. I don't want another one. Are you going to marry Nathan? Katie asked carefully. No. Monica drank deeply of the iced tea and sighed. No, I am not going to marry Nathan, although I was considering it. I'm beginning to see that Nathan and I are not suited to each other at all. Sometimes I wonder if I'm suited to anyone, but it's so lonely being all by yourself. Katie knew all about that. She was relieved to hear that Nathan wasn't going to become a member of the family. 
and she wondered how long it would take for the tobacco smell to wear off the living room furniture. Do you like Mr. Cooper? she asked. Oh, I suppose he's a nice man. I really haven't seen enough of him to know for sure, Monica said. Don't get any ideas about matchmaking, Katie. I'll find someone again one of these days. Do you ever hear from Daddy? From Joe? No, I haven't seen or heard from him in a long time. Katie, you don't dream about us getting back together, do you? Because it won't happen, honey. I know it would be lovely for you if we were all a family again. But when a marriage is over, it's over. We couldn't hold it together for your sake before, even though we both knew you needed a family, because it was bad for us. Do you understand that? I guess so, Katie said. But she didn't really understand. Well, she supposed she'd known, in the back of her mind, that her parents would never be married to each other again. She knew she'd sort of hoped that it might happen. It was just one of those dreams kids have, like being able to fly. You think it would be fun, but you don't really believe in it. Monica didn't look as if she felt much like talking, and Katie didn't either. Or rather, Katie did feel like talking, only there was no one she could talk to. Other people, she thought, had mothers they could talk to about their intimate problems. But she was too afraid of what Monica's face would look like if she suddenly learned that Adam Cooper was asking so many questions about her and why. If Monica was afraid of a baby that didn't cry, and then uncomfortable because that child taught herself to read at the age of three, how would she feel to know that her daughter was able to communicate with cats, make small objects move through the air without touching them, and create winds all by herself, violent winds that could slam a door hard enough to make a man's nose bleed when it struck him? No, talking to Monica was out of the question. Katie left her sitting there sipping her tea, looking rather sad and lost, much the way Katie felt. She went to her room to read, but fell asleep puzzling over her problem. Her anxiety was still with her the next morning, and after puzzling a long time, she decided that there was one person she could talk to, Mrs. M. She would at least be honest. Katie let herself out into the corridor, but she didn't knock on Mrs. M's door. The reason for that was that the door stood ajar, and she could see that there was no one inside the apartment except Lobo, who was polishing off something in his cat dish. He lifted his head and stared at her, his great yellow eyes unblinking. Hi, Lobo. Where's Mrs. M? She didn't really expect an answer, but it was there, hanging in her mind almost as if the cat had spoken. Mrs. M had gone downstairs to mail a letter. Oh, that explained why she'd left the door open. She expected to be right back and didn't want to bother with a key. Are you all well now? Katie asked politely. Lobo switched his tail as if to convey the information that sick cats didn't eat. He licked at his dish. Katie turned away, heading for the stairs. She had to talk to somebody. She was on the landing, halfway down to the ground floor foyer, when she heard their voices, Mrs. M and Mr. C. Look, Mrs. M said crossly, who are you anyway? What do you have against that little girl? I don't have anything against her. I only want some information and I think you can give it to me, Mrs. Michaelmas. Katie has confided in you. She trusts me. That's because I don't go blabbing everything I know, Mrs. M said, her voice heavy with meaning. Mr. C didn't back off, however. He wasn't discouraged. Either he was thick-skinned, which Katie didn't think he was, or it was important to him to get answers. Otherwise, he wouldn't have kept pushing when Mrs. M had made it clear she thought he was too nosy. Katie tiptoed down another step so that she could look over the railing and see them, or at least the tops of their heads. Mrs. M's white hair looked as if someone had stirred it up with an egg beater, wisps going in all directions. Mr. C ran a hand through his thick, sandy thatch and spoke with a quiet firmness. Mrs. Michaelmas, I'm afraid Katie's in trouble. You can help her by helping me. In trouble? 
Mrs. M's voice sharpened, and Katie felt her own stomach bunch up into an uncomfortable knot. What are you talking about? What kind of trouble? Has she talked to you about her grandmother? I know she lived with her grandmother for a few years, that's all. Did she say anything to you about how her grandmother died? Katie's fingers curled on the stair railing, and although it was still warm, she felt a chill. What did he mean? The people who live across the road from her grandmother's place think Katie is responsible for a lot of bad things that have happened on their farm. Young pigs born dead, fruit falling off the trees before it's ripe, Mr. Armbruster breaking his arm when the ladder slipped out from under him. Mrs. M made a rude noise. Psh! How silly can you get? Katie's a sweet child. She wouldn't harm anyone. Well, that's what you think. Some of her grandmother's neighbors think otherwise, and they say that Mrs. Welker was afraid of her granddaughter because of things that Katie knew how to do. Things most kids never even thought of doing, and things other people, even adults, can't do. You wouldn't believe the stories I heard in that little town about Katie's peculiar activities. No, I wouldn't, Mrs. M said stoutly. If Katie hadn't been so perturbed by what Mr. C was saying, she'd have spared a moment to bless Mrs. M. Well, some people in Delaney think Katie's a sort of witch. If she'd been around a few hundred years ago, they'd probably have burned her at the stake or drowned her on a dunking stool. And it isn't just the people where she used to live, Mrs. Michaelmas. Surely you are aware that some odd things have happened right here, in this building, since Katie moved in. Katie scarcely listened while he listed the events surrounding Mr. Pollard. Her fright had grown until it was making her shake. She'd read in school about the old days when witches were burned or tied to a stool that was used to hold them under water in an attempt to make them confess that they were witches. If a person didn't drown, Mrs. Anderson had explained, that proved to the villagers that that person was a witch because how else could she have lived after being dunked and held under? And of course, if the witch drowned, proving that she had not had supernatural powers after all, why, that was too bad. They'd simply made a mistake. They didn't still do things like that to people they thought were witches. But what might they do if they were afraid of her? Afraid of what she could do? Up to now, her powers to create winds and move things about had been part nuisance and part entertainment. Now, Katie saw quite clearly that they could also be incredibly dangerous. And unfortunately, the powers were so small, so weak, that they didn't give her any protection against those who might want to harm her because she was different. Mr. Armbruster, she thought furiously. She'd had nothing to do with his pigs, and had only made fruit drop a few days sooner than it would have fallen anyway. She certainly hadn't made his ladder fall over so that he broke his arm. She could see that she ought not to have had anything to do with him at all. It had been a serious mistake to entertain herself by stirring up winds around him that blew the leaves off the trees so that they drifted onto the lawn he'd just raked and by rolling apples under his feet so that he'd skidded on them. Mr. and Mrs. Armbruster had been in church the times the papers had slithered around, too, and everybody had started sneezing. Mrs. Armbruster had sneezed so hard that the flowers on her hat went askew, and her face had been red before she stopped. Katie had never especially liked them because they were always cross and short-tempered and had forbidden her ever to pick any more of the blackberries along their fences. That was quite unreasonable in Katie's opinion because the bushes were on the outside of the fences along the road and mostly Mrs. Armbruster didn't even pick them all for her own use. They had never been able to understand where the berries went after Katie learned that she could sit on the far side of the road and pluck them through the air, one by one, sailing them directly into her opened mouth. That had been mildly entertaining until the time when she had almost sucked in a bee by mistake, thinking it was a berry. She'd realized her error just in time, and luckily the bewildered bee had chosen to return to its honey-filled blossom rather than teach her a lesson with its sting. 
And now those hard arm brusters were saying something bad about her. Katie sank onto the stairs and pressed her face against the stair railing. Mrs. M knew a lot of things about her, and if Mrs. M wasn't a real friend, she could certainly fill Mr. C's ears with what he wanted to hear. Mrs. M was standing now, with her hands on her wide hips, scrunching up the most wildly flowered moo-moo Katie had yet seen, glaring at Mr. C. Look, I've got better things to do than listen to what some idiot farmer thinks about a perfectly nice little girl. I don't know what you think you're up to, moving in here and pretending to make friends with her, but don't expect any help from me in causing trouble for her. I'm not trying to cause any trouble, Mrs. Michaelmas. I'm trying to straighten out the trouble that's already there. I can see I'm going to have to show you this. Katie heard Mrs. M's indrawn breath and pressed harder against the bars in an effort to see what it was Mr. C was showing her. It was small because he held it in his hand. He must have taken it from his pocket. Mrs. M reacted like a balloon with a slow leak. She seemed to shrink in size as the air and the antagonism seeped out of her. Katie could see the woman's face, and it looked frightened now, rather than angry. When she spoke, Mrs. M's voice was unsteady. What do you want of me? I want to know what that child can do. Make things move, make winds blow, that kind of thing. Katie held her breath. Beside her, Lobo appeared on silent cat feet, his amber eyes gleaming. When he leaned against her, Katie put a hand on his soft fur simply from habit. She'd always liked cats even before she found out they could talk to her, but her attention was still on the scene below. What do you want with a little girl who isn't even 10 years old yet? Mrs. M asked. She isn't much more than a baby. Some people think she's a very dangerous baby, Mr. C said in a quiet voice that just barely carried to the listener on the stairs. Her old neighbors think the police should investigate how her grandma came to fall down those cellar steps and die in the fall. Surely you can see why it's important to learn the truth? Katie was unaware of drawing the big cat into her arms, unaware of the solid furry weight of him. They thought she'd killed her grandma? Was that what they thought? How could anyone believe such a terrible thing? Katie felt as if she were suffocating. You must be crazy, or those neighbors are, Mrs. M said. But she sounded as weak as Katie felt. Now you see why I have to know about Katie, Mr. C said. Let's go upstairs, Mrs. Michaelmas, where we can talk in private. Upstairs. Katie heard that word and rose silently to her feet and fled carrying Lobo with her.